It's been said that you really can't know what love is until it's tested. In other words, the depths of one's love for you cannot be seen until it's proven. Many of us can attest and say amen to that. A boy may tell a girl that he loves her, but it doesn't mean anything until that love has shown itself in activity. Words can merely be words. Love can merely be love. But until those words are backed up with action, then what do those words even mean? What does love even mean if it's not backed up with activity and with action? Is it a fleeting love? Just give it time. Is it a weak love? We'll give it a weight to carry. Is it a selfish love? Well, let's see the sacrifice. Love, yes, needs to be coupled with faithfulness and determination, but also love needs to be accompanied with activity. In order for us to know how much one loves us, then love must be at some point demonstrated. If you say you love me, then the saying goes, show me, prove it. The question I want for us to consider this morning is, does God love us? Does God love us? And if so, how has he demonstrated his love for us? If God loves us, how has he demonstrated his love for us? Well, one can say that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are children of God. We no longer walk in darkness, but we walk in light. We've been given the gift of faith and grace. One can say that we've been reconciled to God. We've been given the Holy Spirit. But the question still remains, how has God demonstrated his love for us? How has God demonstrated his love for us? Every spiritual gift that we have are only the benefits of God's demonstration of love. They all come from this one source of activity in which God has shown his love for us. But what I'm asking is how exactly has God demonstrated his love for us? Where can we point to and say, this is how God has demonstrated his love for us? And the answer in your head, if I'm reading you correctly, is right. That God has demonstrated his love for us by sending forth his only begotten son. That is how God says, I love you this much that I will send the one whom my soul delights in. He sends forth his only begotten son and the very apex of that love is seen at the cross. The cross highlights God's love for us. It shows us how vast, how great, how big his love for us is. But in our text this morning, we see another way in which God demonstrated his love for us. Yes, by sending his son. And I think at times the quick answer is to say God demonstrates his love for us by sending to us his son in order for him to die. We, we go strictly to the cross and we miss out the other way in which God has demonstrated his love for us. Jesus, yes, died for us on the cross by our unrighteousness transferred to him and his perfect righteousness imputed to us. The great exchange that happened on the cross. But in our text this morning, we see that God demonstration, he demonstrates his love for us by his son's perfect obedience. That yes, it was by his death but also it was by his life. God demonstrates his love for us by 
his son's perfect obedience. Now, you might ask, how do we see God's love for us demonstrated by Christ's obedience? How does obedience and God's love for us relate? The answer is seen in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. And if you are able to stand, uh, stand when you are there. We will read from God's word. Isaiah chapter 50. This is the third servant song of Isaiah. And we will be in chapter 50 verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord says this. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I have sent her away? Or which is my creditors? Is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities, you were sold and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. Why? When I came, there was no man. Why? When I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened? that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord has given me the tongue to those of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ears, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Saints, that's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I just have two points that will help us consider God's love for us and his son's obedience. The first point is God's love questioned. God's love questioned. The second point, God's love proved. God's love questioned, and then God's love proved. Let's consider the first point, which is God's love question. If one was to read the prophecy of Isaiah, one would find that Isaiah's main objective is to prophesy of this coming Messiah. He is to speak about this mysterious figure that is going to do more than just restore the land of Israel. But he is going to restore people's relationship to God. We know this mysterious figure as the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ stepped on the scene, before anyone was even thinking of Jesus Christ, before Matthew chapter 1 and all the Gospels, Isaiah was preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in his day. And as Isaiah is writing the text that we have before us this morning, he's living in a time when Israel was going through one of its darkest days. The hour is completely dark in Israel's time. They have been thrown out of the land. They were slaves to Babylon. The temple has been destroyed. People have been killed. And judging from their outward circumstances, Israel feels like everyone is against them, even their God. Based on their outward circumstances, They could see the evidences of God's non-love for them. When they look out afar, when they consider what Israel used to be, they ask themselves, does God still love us? Are we still God's chosen people? 
in every Israelite's mind, I'm sure, God's love for his people has faded away. It's been lost. It's no longer here. But this questioning of God's love is nothing new to Israel. They've always questioned God's love. From the moment that they were taken out of captivity in Egypt, when they were in the wilderness, they were complaining about God's love. They've always had trust issues with God. Even when we come to the very last book of the Old Testament, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Malachi, God says to Israel, I have loved you. In spite of a relationship that's been filled with cheating and idolatry, in light of unfaithfulness, God still says to this broken people, I love you. But what does Israel say in response? How have you loved me? In what way have you loved us? And in the same way, in our text this morning, Israel is saying to God, how have you loved us? The temple is gone. People have been killed. We are slaves. How have you loved us, God? And saints, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have asked that question before in our lives. God, how have you loved? us. When my father died, God, how do you, do you still love me? When my son was born and was taken to the NICU, God, do you still love me? Have you ever read God's word? And time and time again, we read that God's love for us is unchangeable. It doesn't change. It's impossible. It doesn't go through mood swings. His love is set and fixed on us from all eternity. Yet when we look at our outward circumstances, it's kind of hard not to echo the words of Israel. How have you loved me? In what ways? I lost my job. My son is acting up in school. How have you loved me, God? Maybe you've come to church this morning, saying, asking that very question. Maybe you've been up all night, up all month, asking that very question. I look at my outward circumstances, and I don't see the evidences of God's love for me. Where is it? And friends, if that's you, consider the opening words of our text this morning. Look at me at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? With which I have sent her away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? What a glorious verse that is, is it not? Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I have sent her away? In other words, what God is saying is, where's the bill of our divorce? You say that we have broken up, where's the receipt? Where are the papers? There's no court documents. God is saying, just because every proof of my love for you has been stripped away, that doesn't mean that I have actually stopped loving you. Just because your outward circumstances are dark doesn't mean that I've actually stopped loving you. If I have, then where's the divorce papers? Bring to me the receipts. To whom have I sold you to? Saints, we can learn from this. Just because every outward evidence shows that God's love for us has changed. Does it mean that God has changed? Saints, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, as the Apostle Paul says. No demon. No nothing. God's love for you, saint, hasn't changed. You know why? Because God can't change. And if God's love for you was to change for one second, then he would cease being God. Because he is love. Love is one with his nature. It's not some attribute of God. It is who he is. And if his, if his love for you was to lessen, was to heighten in any way, then is he even God? John Owen says it better. He says, on whom he fixes his love, it is immutable, unchangeable. It doesn't grow to eternity. It is not diminished at any time. It is an eternal love that had no beginning, that shall have no end. And hear these words, that cannot be heightened by any act of ours, that cannot be lessened by anything in us. Any outward act that I do cannot heighten God's love for me, and any sin that is indwelling in me cannot lessen God's love for me. God's love for you will never change. And here God is challenging Israel to show him how his love for them has changed. And friends, the issue is not with God's love for Israel. The issue is Israel's love for God. It's never God. It's always ourself. Consider what the rest of verse 1 says. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother has sent you away. In other words, I haven't sold you away. I didn't send you away. You sold yourself away. You sent yourself away. Your sin has led you astray. Not the demonstration of my love. It is for your faithfulness or unfaithfulness to me. That has caused you to question my love for you. Not my unfaithfulness to you. It is your unfaithfulness. And this unfaithfulness of Israel is highlighted in verse 2. Why, when I came, there was no man? Why, when I called, there was no one to answer? In other words, what God is saying is, I came to you. Each and every one of you. I showed myself. I called you by name. Yet there was none that was faithful. Now, what does it mean that God came to Israel? It simply means this. That Israel was given all the privileges of what it means to be in covenant with God. They had every privilege. God approached Israel with the preaching of the word. To them was given the prophets. To them was given the law. They were his people. He could have picked any people. But he picked Israel. God demonstrated time and time again his fatherly kindness toward them. Yet when God came to Israel, not one answered his call. John Calvin says, constant invitation, having been given of no advantage to them. When he held out the hope of pardon and, and uh, exhorted them to repentance, it is with, no good re- it was with good reason that he speaks of it as a monstrous thing and asks, Why was there no man to meet? They are therefore held to be convicted of ingratitude. Because while they ought to have sought God, they did not choose to meet him when he came. For it is an instance of extreme ingratitude to refuse and to accept the grace of God, which is freely offered. What John Calvin is saying is it is for Israel's lack of ingratitude and failure to repent that has caused them to be removed from every outward expression of God's love. When God came to them to repent, Israel said no. Not one man arose from Israel. Not one man from the nation answered the call of God. And friends, this isn't just true of Israel. This isn't just isolated to Israel. But this is true of every Old Testament saint and prophet. Yes, some were good men. But none can do 
what God ultimately wanted them to do or called them to do. God came to Moses, but we lost a generation to the wilderness. God came to Joshua, but he didn't fully conquer the promised land. God came to David, but David was too much of a sinner. And the throne got weaker and not stronger. Isaiah answered his call, but he was a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah was called by God, but Jeremiah regretted the day he was born. And the same could be said of Ezekiel, of Daniel, of Joe, of Hosea, of Malachi, of every Old Testament prophet. None could do what only one could do. And in the midst of an unfaithful people, there was one who was faithful. In the midst of an unfaithful people, there was one Israelite that was faithful. There was one who went on the behalf of not only the people of Israel, but of those who are Jew or Greeks and Gentiles. He went on the behalf of the entire world. He stood in the place of every unfaithful sinner in Adam. And that man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So to recap, the people have complained of God's love. God tells them that his love for them has not changed. And now he's going to demonstrate how his love for them has not changed in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Which leads to our second and last point, which is God's love proved. God's love has been called out. Now God is going to prove his love. God has called out Israel for their unfaithfulness. He says, it was because of your sin and your unrepentant heart. Why things are going the way that they are. It's because of you, not me. And in many ways, Israel reflects the words of Paul in Romans 3.12. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. They epitomize in their person. Romans 3.12. And as we come to verse 4 of our text, we see that a righteous one arises. And what we have in just three verses is a description of God's unfaithful son, Israel. But in verse 4, God's beloved and obedient son takes the stage. It's almost as if we move from darkness to light. And the spotlight is on one person. A servant. A son. So far, the father has been the voice that's been speaking. But now God's son will have the voice or be the voice. And for verses four through seven, what we have set before us is the obedience of Jesus Christ put on display. And what I want you to see in these three verses and the last verse is going to be sort of an exhortation is that God shows his love for us by his son's perfect obedience. And we'll see that in three ways. Three ways God shows his love for us, therefore, are thereby Christ showing his love for us. And the first is, Christ shows his love for us by speaking the words of his Father. Christ shows his love for us by speaking the words of his Father. Now, stay with me here. Verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Now, this is a glorious verse. And this is a point that was made last Lord's Day when we read that the father has made his servant's mouth as a sharp sword and polished arrow. And here the servant takes it a step further. He says that the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. And when we think about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, what amazed people more than his miracles with what was what he actually said in Luke 4, chapter, uh, verse 22, after Christ had spoken, the people ask, is this not Joseph's son? It's almost as if we've seen this boy around. I remember him. How is he saying these things? 
Is this not the the man from Nazareth? What good thing can come from Nazareth? Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus taught with authority and he was able to open the scriptures in a way that's never been done before. He was able to speak with authoritative power. He accurately preached and taught the word of God, but also he applied the word of God. He left people asking, where did this man get such learning? What school did he go to? What degree does he have? Christ had such knowledge of the scriptures. When we think about the the prophetic office of Jesus Christ, when he, when he preached the word, reciting Old Testament passages was just so natural to him. When he would talk, when he would speak, whether it be preaching a sermon or he would, when he would talk to others, the Old Testament just flowed out of his mouth like a river. He knew the word in and out. He most likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. That is why in the life and ministry of Jesus, what's the one question that he asked most often? Have you not read? Have you not read? And saints, he wasn't saying that to just ignorant Gentiles. But he was saying that to religious Jews. He was saying that to the scribes and the Pharisees. Those who were seen to have the most knowledge. And he brought upon them the indictment of, have you not read? And Christ is only able to say, have you not read? Because day by day, as a young boy, all the way up to adulthood, he was taught by his father. And this is exactly what he says in verse 4. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear those who were taught for 30 years. The father, through the spirit, was teaching his servants what to say. He was equipping his servants on what to say. For 30 years, the father molded and shaped every single word in his son's mouth. We can say that the son was speaking not his own vocabulary, but he was speaking the vocabulary of his father. For 30 years, the father molded and shaped his son's words in order that for three years, Christ can say, I only speak my father's words. That's so different than us or those even who are in seminary and all that. They trained for three years to preach for 30 years. Christ was trained for 30 years to preach for three years. And this is what he says time and time again. John 12, 49. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who has sent me has uh, sent me, uh, has myself himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. John 7, uh, 16. My teaching is not my own. But it comes from him who sends me. But we ask, or we must ask, what is the purpose for the Father giving Christ the tongue of those who are taught? What is the reasoning for this? The answer is found in verse 4, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. What a glorious verse that is. Glorious. What a glorious use of the tongue that is. Remember, the servant is the one who will not uh, cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Christ speaks not to kill others, but to sustain with a word those who are weary. His words were used to heal the brokenhearted, to soothe weary souls. And saints, isn't this what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? We can write a, a, write a, a poem book 
of just some phrases from our Christ. Have you heard this? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Have you heard this one in John six thirty five? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's words like this, saints, that gave the oppressed and afflicted hope. It's what soothed every weary soul. But we have to ask, how does Christ speaking the words of his father show that he truly loves us? How? It seems like there's a disconnect there. How is it that you are showing your love for me by speaking someone else's words? doesn't make any sense. The answer is simply this, saints. If Jesus at one point slipped up, if Jesus at one point said something falsely, if he at one point made a mistake, misspoke, sinned by his words, then we would have no hope of salvation. Saints, when we say that we are saved by the life of Jesus Christ, we are not just saved by his actions. We are saved by every word and every thought. We are saved by the words of Christ just as much as we are saved by the deeds of Christ. Every word, every thought is accredited to our account by faith. Christ's words are our words. His thoughts are our thoughts. His life, entire, entire life is our life, not just what he does. But what he says, and he was so aware of what he was saying. He did not allow anyone to accuse him of being a liar or a hypocrite, to bearing false witness or being a fraud. But all of his words were holy, sanctified and pure. There was nothing that could accuse him. And we see the greatness of Christ as he spoke is that he did the one thing that none of us could do. He tamed his tongue. Isn't that what James exhorts us to do? Christ was the only one that was able to do that. The one thing that we can not control is the one thing that Christ controlled. He knew when to speak, but he also knew when to be silent. He knew what to say to that mother who just lost her husband. He knew what to say to that father whose son is dying in his deathbed. But he also knew what to say before Pilate. He didn't say anything at all. Christ in his life shows us that he loves us by speaking the words of his father And as we move on in our text, we see the second way Christ shows his love for us is by remaining faithful to God, by remaining faithful to God. And this is seen in verse five, verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. And in the life of Jesus Christ, saints, what sets Jesus Christ apart from every single person that came before him, even Adam in the garden? was he didn't just merely hear the words of his father, but he acted upon the words of his father. Jesus Christ obeyed his father. In fact, my own father used to tell me, it seemed every single day, listen, boy. And he wasn't just merely meaning listen to his words, but take heed to what I'm saying. Put into action what I'm telling you. That is what verse 5 means. The Lord has opened my ear. In fact, in Christ's life, he repeatedly said, he's come down not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. That was almost his life verse. I've come down not to do my own thing, but to do the Father's will. At every point, 
At all points of his life, Christ obeyed every jot and tittle of his father's words. All that was commanded, whether it be take on human flesh, whether it be be circumcised on the eighth day, to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, to be born under the law, to fulfill every letter of the law. Jesus Christ, the constant refrain was, I was not rebellious. I was not a rebel. But I did all that was quite required. But notice, saints, with me what the ending of verse 5 says. Look at here. It reads, I turned not backward. I was not rebellious and I turned not backward. Now, we can read that verse and we can say, praise God that Jesus never gave up. That's fine. And I thank God that Jesus Christ never gave up in his mission. But there's a deeper meaning to this text or this line. When the servant says he didn't turn backward, it means that he was active in his obedience. It means that he kept going forward. You see, it's one thing to know that you're going to suffer. But it's another thing to walk toward suffering. Jesus Christ walked toward suffering. He walked toward the gates of hell. He walked toward that cup that was prepared for him. Jesus walked toward his suffering. He was aware that he was going to suffer greatly. You think Jesus didn't know all that he was going to go through in his life? Every single thing that happened to Christ in his life with respect to suffering, he knew. Yes, according to his divine nature, but he read it in the Old Testament. He read Isaiah 53 and he saw himself all that the Messiah was having to go through. Yet one foot remained ahead of the other. Jesus walked toward the cross. He didn't live as a lamb blindfolded, unaware of what was going to happen. And saints, isn't this the height of love? If love is going to truly be love, then it must be aware. It must be mindful of what's happening. If Jesus Christ in his life suffered blindfolded, then what love is that? We would question his love. We would say, how does he truly love us? If he didn't choose this path to our salvation, then how is it love? But Christ was aware of all he would go through. He chose this path for himself. The way to glory was going to be through suffering. The way to exaltation, the way to a throne, there has to be a cross. The way to a crown, there has to be thorns. He was aware of all that he would go through. He was aware of what his obedience would lead him to. And what we see by the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ is that he actively shows how much he truly loves us. It was almost every single day, morning by morning, evening by evening, night by night, he was showing how much he truly loved us. And we see in verse 6, the third way in which Christ shows his love for us. And that is Christ shows his love for us by humiliation and shame. Christ shows his love for us by humiliation and shame. Consider with me, saints, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those to pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. What verses these are. It's almost as if we can just stop here and just want to pray or sing a hymn, or just think about our Lord. Friends, in the age that we live in today, the one thing that none of us ever want to experience 
is humiliation and shame. None of us want to experience degradation. None of us want to experience what it feels like for people to put us down, to think less of us. If we were honest with ourselves, we all desire to be respected, to be treated with some class, be treated with dignity, not to be made a fool of. But friends, what we so greatly try to avoid is the path that Christ chose. The one thing that we so desperately don't want. Christ says, I will take on that burden. He chose to die. And we all accept that when we all marvel at that. But it's the way and the manner and the how he died is what causes us to shake our head in unbelief. He chose to be degraded. He chose to be made fun of. He chose to be mocked. He gave his cheeks to those who pull out his beard. I don't have a beard. And I never will. I'm Asian. I can't imagine how that feels. He did not hide his face from being slapped or spit on. We think the opposite. Think about it, saints. The eternal son. Yes, he had a true human nature. But he's the eternal son. He's the second person of the Trinity. Creator of all. He made the hand that slapped him. He put the spit in that man's mouth. He did that. God of God, very God of very God, was mocked, degraded, spit on, beard pulled out. They gave him a purple robe. They put a crown over his head and said, hell, king of the Jews. They mocked everything that he stood for. Everything that they, he claimed to be, they threw it right back in his face. On the cross, if you truly are the Son of God, save yourself. Show us, God. And friends, we must remember that his humiliation was not done in private. He wasn't sent to a concentration camp. He wasn't sent to a private room. It wasn't done in secret. But they spit in our Lord's face before the world. His humiliation and shame was made an event for all to come to see. But our Lord did not hide his face. But not only did our Lord give them his face, he gave his back. You have my face, and here have my back as well. He gave his back to the Roman soldiers to strike. In fact, saints, if there was any time when Christ turned backward, it was to be tied to a wooden post. If there was any moment in his life where he says, I will turn backward, it was to be tied to the whipping post. It is there on that wooden post where Christ's arms would be outstretched in order that the entirety of his back would be exposed. And the Roman soldiers would come with a whip which consisted of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands. And as they beat and whipped our Lord, as they whipped him and whipped him and whipped him, and as skin began to strip off his back to the point where all you saw was muscle and bone and possibly organs. Friends, we must remember this one thing. That it was not ropes and it was not chains that bound Christ to the whipping post. 
but it was chains of love. It was love that put him there or kept him there. Yes, our sin put him there, but it was love. Only love. With a heart bursting with love for the sinner, he gave. He gave his beard. He gave his face. Here, have my back while you're at it. He gave his back to be whipped in order that sin may stop whipping us. For love for us, Jesus gave his beard to be plucked in order that we may never be plucked from the Father's hands. Out of love for us, Jesus gave his face to be spit on in order that he or that we may never be spit out of his mouth. But saints, we have to ask, how can such man endure such punishment and shame? It was said that when those who were tied to that whipping post would die from being whipped, from just the loss of blood and going unconscious. So how can Jesus Christ sustain this? The answer is found in our last verse, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have not, I've set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. You ask, how can Christ endure such suffering? It's because the Father never left his side. Jesus is the man of Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Saints, quick note, that's always been about Jesus Christ. The Father, by the Spirit, upheld his servant. The Father, by the Spirit, made sure that his servant would look past the suffering, would look past the whips, would look past the mocking, would look past the shame. And it's because of such help, this is why Christ can say, I've set my face like a flint. There was an unwavering resolve that accompanied our Savior. He is like the man of Ezekiel 3, whom the Lord says, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and I have made your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Yes, he was stone-faced in his face, but he was stone, he was, his mind was made of steel. Nothing could waver him. He was unmoved. Christ was unmoved by the words and the blows of men. He was determined. He was faithful. But notice with me what the last line of verse 7 says. In spite of such suffering, in spite of such shame, the servant says, I know that I shall not be put to shame. Glorious verse that is. And isn't that interesting? That the servant just describes how the world is going to shame him. Yet he says, I will not be put to shame. Yes, people will shame me, but the Father will not shame me. And this has such great application for us. How oftentimes are we nervous or scared to pray when we are in a restaurant? When one comes to our house, let's hide our Bibles and let's put away our theology books. When God is brought up in the conversation, let's quickly try to move on to something else. The world's going to shame you. But there is one who will never shame you. Be bold. Be bold for the sake of Christ. For God will not shame his children. If he will not shame Jesus, then he will not shame those who are united to Jesus. The father will uphold his son 
And ultimately, the Father will glorify his Son. So in closing, saints, how does Christ show his love for us? He does so by not being rebellious. He does so by not hiding his face nor turning his back. He does so by giving his back. And ultimately, Christ's love for us is exemplified by his perfect obedience to his Father. You see, saints, we aren't just saved by the crossed work of Christ. You're saved by his active obedience. And friends, what great cost his obedience was. His obedience led him to hunger in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. His obedience led him to be tempted by the devil. His obedience led him to be rejected. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It led him to ridicule. They accused Christ of having a demon. It led him to despair. He asked the disciples, are you going to leave as well? His obedience led him to homelessness. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air has nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It led him to betrayal by a disciple who I know Jesus Christ loved. Jesus loved Judas for the simple fact that we are commanded to love our neighbor and our enemies. And Christ's obedience led him to a garden called Gethsemane. It is there where Jesus Christ shows how much greater he is than Adam. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, what did he do? He hid himself. When Christ came to the garden, he met face to face with his father and said, here I am. It led him to plead with his father, if there's any way, father, remove this cup from me. But the constant refrain was not my will, but yours be done. I will not be rebellious. But ultimately, the obedience of Christ led him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And on the cross, we see the height of God's love for us. We see the height of Jesus' love for his own. On the cross, Jesus leaped into the sea of his father's wrath in order to save us from drowning. Jesus walked into darkness in order that we may behold and see light. Friends, the only thing I can say in closing is, oh, what great love this is. Oh, what great obedience this is. And oh, what a great Savior he is. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray.